Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right, it's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and the effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Michael Carroll will join us to discuss planet Earth. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. Science Show. Well, the planet we live on is not the same as it once was. What can we learn about the history of Earth by looking at our nearest neighbors? Joining us today to discuss this issue is Michael Carroll. His art has appeared in several hundred magazines throughout the world, including National Geographic, Time, Smithsonian, Astronomy. He has written over 30 books on science topics ranging from space to archaeology. He has put together the new book, Planet Earth, past and present parallels between our world and its celestial neighbors mr carroll thank you so much for joining us again on the grok sideshow well thanks for having me back i appreciate it back with another great book beautiful illustrations filled with amazing images this one looking at the links between earth and our nearest neighbors i'm curious how the idea for this book came together Well, I have always been intrigued by the history of our own planet, and I realized that somewhere along the line that we have had some interesting parallels with other worlds. In the past, the Earth has gone through snowball epochs where glaciers reached down to the equator when the Earth was in that state, it resembled Mars in some ways, the Mars of today. Venus has some very strong parallels with us, things to teach us about what happens when you dump a bunch of carbon dioxide into the air. We can learn things from Saturn's moon Titan, even. Very exotic world, but some ways like Earth when life was just getting started here. And so I thought it would be fun to, through words and paint, make some portraits of the Earth throughout its history, the Earth as other planets. But it took some interesting (laughs) spins along the way. What I didn't realize was how much we're learning about climate from other worlds, climate and long-term climate change. The Earth is a planet in flux. It's not the world it was. It's not the world it's going to be on Earth. changes the norm. But when we look at our history and see the changes of long-term patterns in the fossil record, in, in the sediments, in the ice cores, we begin to see echoes of other planets within our own history. And that took off and informed the very last chapter, which is really about what we are being taught by other worlds about climate change right here on Earth. 
So we oftentimes look to Venus, runaway greenhouse. I think that potentially could be the fate of the Earth. The Earth will never be Venus. Conditions are such that we could never pump the atmosphere up as as badly as it is on Venus. Of course, if you're a Venusian, I guess it's not a bad thing. But Venus is a great laboratory that kind of shows us what can happen when you change the dynamics and the constituency of an, of an atmosphere. One of my favorite stories about Venus is the planet actually helped us to avoid an environmental crisis right here. It all started back in 1978 with the Pioneer Venus missions. Those discovered all kinds of interesting and unexpected things about the atmosphere of Venus. And one was that it had a big hole in its ozone. And it turns out that Venusian atmosphere was creating, naturally generating something called chlorofluorocarbons, suite of chemicals that we also have here on Earth. We don't have many of them. But on Venus, these CFCs were tearing holes in the ozone layer. At the same time here on Earth, we had a whole bunch of industries that were about to introduce CFCs into bug sprays and paint and all kinds of refrigeration systems. And somebody said, hey, wait a minute. We look at Venus. It's 900 degrees on the surface. It's uh, hot enough to melt lead. It rains sulfuric acid. Maybe we don't want to be making our atmosphere like that. And so CFCs were pulled from much of the uh, industry. And doing so, we may well have averted a crisis with our own ozone layer. So this is, to me, is why we study other worlds. It's so that we can understand better how to take care of our own planet. One, of course, that fascinates is that of Titan, and how this could be of the seeding grounds for potential life. Yeah, Titan is, <laughs> Titan is a bizarre place. You could not have made this thing up, you know. Uh, it doesn't show up in any science fiction. Nobody predicted anything like it, although Arthur Clarke does write about methane monsoons. But Titan has these vast seas and, and lakes of liquid methane, but a lot more of them are dried up. There are big dry river valleys. There are remnants of kettle lakes, which have steep sides, and these we find throughout the Midwestern United States, and they are from glaciers. But we don't see glaciers there anymore. So something has significantly changed the climate on this planet-sized moon. What is intriguing to astrobiologists, though, is that the skies of Titan have methane, and this methane interacts with sunlight, and that turns into organic material. The, the building blocks of life are raining all over the surface of this moon. And so, great place to study prebiotic chemistry, chemistry that was around before life arose. So people are doing that. The big problem with Titan and life is what they call the tea effect. If you have hot tea and you throw a spoonful of sugar in and stir it up, it dissolves. It's very nice. You have iced tea and you throw some sugar in and it just kind of sits there like a blob. The problem with Titan is it's so cold that these chemical reactions that have to take place in biology tend to come to a grinding halt. But it turns out that there are all kinds of chemical things going on, lots of magic on uh, Titan where you have 
material that's good for cell walls, cell membranes. You have other stuff combining in new and different ways to make ever more complex chemistry. So the place is, again, it's like a laboratory showing us what Earth was like a long time ago. The temperature is different, but a lot of the chemistry is very, very similar. The Earth has gone through quite a bit to get to where we are and requires some very hostile conditions to begin with, some that still exist out there in the universe and can look to the past by looking at what's there in the present. Yeah, that's right. I mean, you have this beautiful record right next door to us on the moon of what this poor planet has been through, the the cratering, the, the bashing. I mean, early on, the solar nebula, this big cloud of dust and gas, as it began to spin, it flattened out so it looked like a frisbee, the sun formed in the middle where it was densest. But outside of that, it was cosmic bumper cars. There were asteroids and comets bashing into each other and trying to make protoplanets and protoplanets would hit each other and destroy each other and they would uh, come back together until finally you began to grow planetoids and then planets that stabilized and got big enough that their innards heated up. The heavy stuff went to the middle and the light stuff became the crust. But all that stuff is recorded on the surface of the moon which is very cool. The moon and Earth are far enough away from the sun that it's preserved a great deal of that ancient record in terms of chemistry as well as craters. We see a lot of craters, of course, on every surface in the solar system. Everything has been battered and bashed throughout uh, history. But then a lot of these planets and moons develop inner processes that start to wipe that stuff out. The Earth should have as many craters as the moon, but we also have weather, we have plate tectonics, volcanoes that have wiped things out. So moon, excuse me, took all that stuff and preserved it. The thing that's, of course, striking about the book, of course, are the illustrations, and it's sort of tough to talk about that on the radio, but they really are very vivid. And in some ways, looking at these images, one could be confused. This looks like another planet, but it very much could represent the Earth. Yeah, astronomical art follows the same rules as landscape painting, basically. You know, Mother Nature uses the same processes throughout the universe. So you look at the analogs on Earth that may resemble other places geologically, and those then can inform you as a painter so that you can make a better guess as to what what things looked like back in the past and what they will look like in the future. Do you have a particular favorite illustration in the book? Ooh, that's a good question. I think my one of my favorites to work on was the primordial Earth image where you're standing at the edge of a really old ocean and up in the sky is a brand new moon. The moon came along later than the earth began to form. The The earth was settling down nicely. It had a water cycle probably and it had solid surface areas. And then this big thing came barreling in, something they called Thea, informally anyway, and this big Mars-sized planet bashed into the earth, peeled off some of the outer layers, and those then became the moon. And so this painting shows this primordial earth looking up into a, uh, at a molten moon in the sky and lots of lightning generating all kinds of organic material. It was, a, it was an exciting time, not a good time for a picnic. There was nothing we could breathe there, but it was good for the rise of light. 
Then looking at our neighbors, are there any of that you would like to see up close? Well, yeah, I mean, I would love to uh, walk across some of those gorgeous desert landscapes of Mars that we're seeing from the rovers these days. And of course, Mars, being a very Earth-like world, has a lot to teach us, not only about the past, but about climate. Mars is an interesting case. If you take a child's top, a little toy top, and spin it on a table, it wobbles a little bit. That wobble is called precession. Well, every planet spins around an axis, and some of them wobble a lot. They have a lot of precession. The Earth doesn't have a lot because the moon settles us down, but Mars has no big moon. And so its axis, its spin axis, is not very stable. It, can, it has, at times in the past, tipped way over on its side, and other times it didn't have a tip at all. And that axial tilt is what gives us season. So you can imagine if you play with that, what a dramatic effect that's going to have. On Mars, we see evidence of ancient oceans, of ancient rivers, of great glaciers that have carved out the mountains. All these things are gone now. Under the surface, we may have great inventories of ice, and we may actually have some active glaciers hidden in the mountains. But all these things have come and gone for the red planet. They may, in fact, help us to solve a mystery, though, about the Earth. We seem to be missing about a billion years' worth of our record. And it appears that it was erased by global glaciers in the snowball Earth epoch, which was about 700 million years ago. There was no oxygen on Earth, no free oxygen in the atmosphere yet. And so these planet-wide glaciers made the Earth somewhat like Mars, but the movement of these glaciers may have actually worn down a lot of that record. You can see the line between the really ancient stuff and the missing stuff all through the Grand Canyon. You can see it through in many places on the Earth, but it's called the Great Unconformity. And below it, there are these nice layers of stuff, and above it are layers going a different direction, and in between is a, a layer of rock that has been eroded in the typical fashion that glaciers do. So here we've got a big missing bunch of millennia, and the explanation may be found on the planet Mars in the form of glaciers. If you want people to be able to settle in a place, they need to have natural resources uh, to live off the land, and Mars has a lot of those for us. Potentially a place for habitats that could be built in space. Yeah, that's right. One of my chapters, we explore making little mini Earth off world. And one way of doing that would be to build a big cylinder, the O'Neill habitat, where you plaster the walls with your landscapes and the oceans and spin it. And then you put the sun in the middle as a, a bright light source that's kind of linear along that cylinder. They're also talking about tinting some of canyons on Mars rather than terraforming the whole planet, which would take a long time, you can pressurize settlements to low areas. So there are a lot of things we can do out there. Of course, the Artemis project is looking at building some infrastructure between the Earth and the Moon, ultimately with the goal of having a permanent presence there on the lunar surface. And it's a three-day trip, so it's a lot easier to get things out there than it is to Mars or the asteroids or some of these other places where 
looking at. What do you think looking out at the other worlds will tell us about Earth's future? One thing that they are telling us is we've got to take care of this fragile environment of ours. There is nothing like the Earth out there. My wife is a librarian. She often points out that the word unique can't be modified, but I have to say the Earth is completely unique. We have found 5,000 plus exoplanets out there. None of them are anything like us. There are a few Earth-like ones, and some of them even orbit in their habitable zones. But the Earth has a very long list of things that make it the way it is. And so, if nothing else, other worlds have taught us to cherish this place, to take good care of it. I think we have reason for hope. Uh, We hear a lot of dismal forecasts these days, and we are able to tell just how much influence humans have had on things like carbon dioxide levels. We've had abrupt rise in temperature and glaciation has gone in the other direction. We see rising sea levels, but some of the most brilliant people on this planet are working these problems. There are places where we're making progress. There are things we can do as we see the lessons that we're learning from other worlds. We apply to the problems here. And so I have a great deal of hope for this planet and the way we manage it. Just revel in this amazing and wondrous place we live. When you walk out the door, uh, don't take it for granted. Look up, look down. We have soil on this planet. Other planets have regolith, (laughs) which is crushed rock. We have a beautiful blue, usually blue sky. We have things to just enjoy and revel in in terms of the uniqueness of this world we live on and the way it was put together, all the strings that were pulled to make the earth the way it is, and just keep an ear to the ground in terms of the wonders that we are uncovering around us in the solar system and beyond, because these things inform us about our own home. We were talking with Michael Carroll, his new book, Planet Earth, Past and Present, Parallels Between Our World and Its Celestial Neighbors. Mr. Carroll, thank you so much for joining us on the Grok Sideshow. Oh, thanks, Ross. Thanks so much. I appreciate being here. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Sideshow. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking. Bye.